You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. Have you ever wondered about heaven and the location of God? Well, if you are looking for a podcast with all of the answers about the heavens, that's going to help you better understand your faith and figure out where to find God. Where is he? Then you have come exactly to the wrong place. But if you're looking for a show that's going to ask you big questions to struggle with differing opinions of smart theologians and philosophers that's going to leave you completely clueless, then you have found the perfect show for you. I'm just a dummy who loves God and theology and hopes to show my love for God by studying and thinking deeply about the topics that people smarter than me have been thinking about for thousands of years. We started last week going through the Bible and talking about theological stuff as it comes up. We got through the phrase in the beginning and questioned time and came up with no no real answers on things. Um, time's pretty confusing. We're going we're gonna to go back to it. We're going to go back to the Bible and see what theological thing comes up next. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're going to stop right there this time. God created the heavens and the earth. That's going to take us three episodes to get through. I'm not joking because we have to ask, what are all these things? We talked about who is God already. Uh, we have to figure out what does created mean? Why did God create? Uh, most of us know what the earth is. We might not spend much time on that. But what are the heavens? What is heaven? Are there multiple heaven? Why is it the heavens? Um, and yeah, so that's going to take us three episodes to get through this next phase of interest in theology. Uh, today, we're going to ask... What are the heavens? We're going to focus on the heavens this time. Where are they? Is God in the heavens? Is God in heaven? Where's God located? Um, and where was he when he created the heavens? He said he created the heavens and the earth. So where was he? If he's not in heaven when he's creating heaven, assumedly, because he can't be, it's not created yet. So where was he? I'm talking about that. Um, next episode, we're going to discuss what is meant by that word created. What even is created? Um, and can evolution be a part of created? Is evolution, does that, you know, undermine creation or the idea of creating? Um, and does this word imply that God created everything on his own or did God have help? Um, on the other podcast that I do, uh, the whole church podcast, we discuss, we had a conversation with Thomas J. Ord, who believes that God cannot be all powerful. But if by powerful, we mean he can do anything. God can't make one plus one equal five. God can't not love. God can't lie. There's a lot of things God can't do. So he doesn't think we should use the word omnipotence. He doesn't think we should say powerful. And in that conversation, he states that he doesn't believe God can create without something already created helping him. So God has to have help to create in his belief, not my belief. I don't agree with that. I think God had to create ex nihilo, which we'll talk about that later today and tomorrow. That's the idea that God had to create everything out of nothing. That's an important theological doctrine for a lot of people, not Thomas J. Ord, but for a lot of people, that's an important doctrine. So we will discuss that heavily over the next couple episodes. Then part three, the third episode we're going to do on this phrase, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to discuss why. Why did God decide to create? What was the point? Did he just create? Was he bored? Um, it is, he's all good and sufficient, right? God's sufficient in of himself. So did he need creation? Did he need to create things? Why would he create an imperfect universe? Why wouldn't he create a perfect universe if he's perfect? Um, and did God need, did God want to create or is it a need? Um, there's a lot of questions about why did God do this creating thing? So that's why it's going to take us three different parts. So today 
We're just going to discuss the heavens. Where is God? In a couple weeks, the next episode we do, we're going to discuss what does it mean by created or create? And then the last part of this particular series, we're going to discuss why did God create? So today we're talking about the heavens. Where is God? Where was God when he created heaven? Was there a place before then that God was located that he was able to create heaven? Let's look, let's look at some Bible passages. Um, I'm a big fan of all kinds of theology. We talked about in the very first episode the different types of theology, one of which is biblical theology. So we're going to look at Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Um, especially when you're trying to figure out what the Bible means by a thing, it's helpful to look at other parts of the Bible, even though they weren't all written by the same people or any of that. We'll get into that one day when we talk about her, hermeneutics. But it is still helpful because these ideas build on each other and form one another. And in some way, I believe the Bible is inspired by God so that we do know that it's all inspired by the same spirit. So there has to be some consistency. So we're going to look at Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, which the psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee your presence? He's singing to God. All the years are capital. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, Behold, you are there. If I take up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will take hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are a light to you. A lot of times people like to focus on these verses. It says God avoids the darkness and dark is where evil happens and light is where good happens. Well, this verse says the dark and light are the same to God. God created both the same. Um, and you see, you know, he tries to go to the grave. He goes to Sheol. God's there. He, if he went to heaven, God would be there. If he was in the sky, God's there. If he's in the water, God's there. God's everywhere, according to him. So there's this idea of God filling all space. God is in all things. God is everywhere. That is the eminence of God in all of creation. It's sort of what's hinted at by the psalmist in Psalm 139. So if God's, God's everywhere, is that it? Is that the end of the conversation? We talked last time. There's a lot of verses that says, God, you're far off to me. You're in the heavens, far away. So we've, we've talked about this before when we talked about God. Is he far away? Is he transcendent? Or is he imminent? Is he in all things? The Bible suggests both at different times. But can we say he's both? Can we say he's far away and right here with us everywhere? I mean, that kind of seems like a paradox. Good question. So we can't answer or even think about where God is without going back to what God is. And, of course, I know you guys are going to love this, but what is time? <laughs> we have to go back to what is time. Um, so if God is love, if he's a spirit or he's wisdom or any of these like uh, untangible things, intangible kind of ideas, if he's just kind of a construct, then God doesn't need space or time. He doesn't need to exist in a place or in a time. He's just a thing that maybe we can tap into, maybe we aren't. Maybe it's like the force, like Star Wars. So questions of when or where God are, are completely moot. Like they're nonsensical questions. If that's what we say God is, if we say that he's only spirit, he's only love, he's only wisdom, if he's only those kind of um, corporal things, then he doesn't need space or time. The whole question is just dumb. There's a problem with that, though. And that's we see time and time again throughout history of the church, throughout the Bible, throughout my own experiences. And this is what makes it hard for me personally. God interacting with this plane, with physical things, with things that are truly tangible in here. 
I went through a car accident. I should have died. Even the other guy's lawyer said it was a miracle I lived. I think God interacted. God can't interact with the physical unless he has a physical part, unless he has something tangible about himself or the ability to become tangible. Um, let me let me kind of explain what why I believe that, what I mean by that. If God is more tangible, he's like an actual being. He has his own thoughts, his essence, ability to interact with the world physically. If he's able to interact, he has to both have space and time, temporal and spatial properties in order to enact with things in that dimension. Think about it this way. In order for me to interact with this cup that I'm drinking out of a cup right now, I can interact with it in a total of three dimensions. You know, I'm able to put my hand on it and grab it like it's a 3D thing and interact with it in that way. If there was a fourth dimension of it, I could not perceive it, so I could not interact with it. If that makes sense. If it existed in some other plane outside of what I'm able to see, I'm putting my hand on the cup. I'm going all the way around. I don't feel any other things because I'm a three-dimensional being. But if my cup was a four-dimensional being, I wouldn't be able to interact with it in that fourth dimension. Um, Think of a square, right? I'm three-dimensional. I can act with, I can interact with the concept of a square, in every dimension it exists. Because a square exists in two dimensions, I exist in three. Two of the dimensions I exist in are the same of that square. So even though it's a flat thing, I can fully interact with it. I can fully interact with something that is 3D. But let's reverse it. If I were a square, I could not completely interact with this cup because it is three-dimensional. And squares are two-dimensional. So I can only interact with it on those two dimensions. I don't know if you're following me or not. Imagine square, it can interact with one part of this cup at a time, all the way up. But it can't interact with all three spaces. So it can't interact on the X, Y, and Z things because square only exists on the X and Y planes. I hope that makes sense. Square is a two-dimensional thing, so it can only interact in two dimensions. So basically, in order to interact with something else, you have to have the same dimensions or more than it. I cannot interact with like a black hole, for instance. Or if, if it helps, think about it this way, even though this these aren't dimensions, so this is going to get confusing. Um, but if you ever go to like a 4D theater at Disney World or something, they'll have, you know, you see it in 3D, like it's coming out at you, and then there's also smell. Smell is not actually a dimension, but for the, our purposes of this discussion, let's pretend like it is. There's smell, there's stuff where you can feel it, that kind of thing. But I can't interact with smell. I can smell things, but I can't interact with the smell part of it because I don't have that dimension. Does that make sense? Unless I was a scent. If I was a scent, I could change. I could contact that other scent and change the scent. But outside of that, I cannot. So even though scent's not a dimension, I hope that kind of helps you visualize what I'm talking about. Um, Basically, that, that means logically, God can exist in all of the same dimensions as us, if he interacts with us, he can exist in all the same dimensions as us, or possibly more dimensions than us to interact with us. What he cannot do, God cannot exist in less dimensions with us and interact with us fully, because that means we we exist in three dimensions. A two-dimensional thing cannot exist with me, uh, interact with me fully, the same way that a three, four, five, six-dimensional being could. So God needs to either be three-dimensional or more. I hope that helps. I know that's extremely confusing, but basically if I exist in space and time, 
and God's going to interact with me, he at least has to exist in space and time. He might be able to exist in other dimensions as well, but he has to exist there too, or have the ability to transition into existing in those dimensions. So the reason I don't think God can be imminent if time is static, we mentioned that last episode, if time is just a static thing and everybody has their own temporal parts, but time itself doesn't really exist, um, it's going to be because of kind of my own biases in what's called multidimensional theories. If I only have these static temporal parts, they're unchangeable because time isn't really real. My death is just part of me in a different time and my birth is part of me in a different time. None of it can change. Everything in between is just fixed parts of me that I can't physically see. I just have these different temporal parts. If that's the case, then you that that means I don't have free will because everything's static. Everything I'm going to do or have done was always part of what it meant to be me. It means when God created me, if I'm going to believe that God created me, I believe he created all of the things that I am all at once because that's what static theory of time would imply. That means I didn't have free will. I didn't have the choice to believe in God to get salvation, any of that. And how can God interact with me if I don't have free will, if I don't have any choice and I'm just a set object that happens to have temporal parts? There is no interacting with that. No more than I can interact with, you know, a book, a car, a phone, printer, box, square. It's just a thing that exists. If time is static, that's all that I am. I'm just a thing that exists. There's no true relationship there. I mean, from the right perspective, just like you can see something in 3D or 2D, if you had more dimensions, you might be able to see all of my timeline at once, which we would have to assume that God could do that if time was static, because he would have to be able to create all of the things. And in order to do that, he had to see it all at once. So, a so, so basically, just like a square is a square is a square, right? It's just this flat thing. If I just have my own temporal parts and I exist like that, then a Josh is a Josh is a Josh. God can't have any more relationship with me than I can have a relationship with the idea of square. A square is a square. A Josh is a Josh. Um, now, that doesn't make the theory wrong, but it's just unhelpful for further conversation. So that's why I said that last time. I just wanted to reiterate kind of my theory on that. And it's going to really apply when we talk about these multidimensional things. When we're talking about where is God, something we really have to think about. In previous episodes, I mentioned some Bible verses that show that God is in all things, like what we read earlier. He fills all of earth and space in some verses, but he's also high above, out of reach in some spaces. So let's go back to that. Let's go back to that. Is God far above and transcendent far away from us, or is he imminent? Is he in all things? And that's, again, going to take us back to the last episode. We talked about Isaac Newton's ideas of empty space and a cosmic clock. If Newton is right, and I think it's helpful to assume that for right now, just because we need somewhere to start. We need a premise that space can exist without anything in it. That in other words, space doesn't just exist because of my relationship to other objects or my relationship to oxygen and my brain making sense of that. If there were no chemicals, no oxygen, no things, there would still be space that could be filled. That's empty space. Isaac Newton believed in empty space and he believed a cosmic clock, whereas time might be relative from our Earth to Jupiter because of different gravitational pulls and speeds, which we talked about. That is a thing that the overall universe relies on this one cosmic clock with a definitive timeline. If Isaac Newton's theories of empty space and cosmic clock are correct, 
that means that God can exist in time or in his own time at the, you know, when we're talking about the beginning, he could exist anywhere in time. He could exist. He could have his own timeline reaching into ours. There could be two different blocks and he's in a bigger block reaching into our block of time. That could just be a thing. If the cosmic clock theory is correct, if empty space is correct, then God could have filled all the space. There could have just be this empty space and God was filling all of it. And when he created, he was filling that space that he filled, filling the space that he was already filling. Yeah, basically putting things in the dimensions with himself because he was already there. He was there before there was a heaven, before there was an earth, and he created an earth in his presence so that it was intimately connected with him because God fills all space. So as he began to put things into space, God was already there. Um, so that's one theory. I think it makes a lot of sense. God is everywhere. So he's in space. He's in the heavens. He's in the sky. He's on earth. He's everywhere. And as he created, he just started placing things in the space that he was already filling so that as things were created, God was there. So God has always been there. Another theory, alternatively, is that God exists in the multiverse. I know that sounds like a comic book or a bad cheesy movie, but there is actually a lot of theories from serious philosophers and scientists throughout time <laughs> who have believed in some version of the multiverse. Um, a lot of the early church was strongly against the notion of the multiverse. I don't know if you know this. This was a conversation that a lot of early church fathers and even some of the people in the Bible actually did have to have these conversations. Um, even a lot of important Jewish thinkers fought against the notion of the multiverse. So there's this guy in early Greek thought, Epicurean. And Epicurean, he creates Epicureanism, Epicurus, all this stuff. Um, he subscribed to what was known as atomism. So at the time, there was a lot of Greek philosophers who kind of did this deconstruction of the universe and realized that everything kind of seems to be made up of other parts, right? You, you can find wood and you can find that wood is actually made up of other things. And when you burn it, when you do different things, it disintegrates into the other parts that it was. Um, same thing with, with a lot of different stuff, basically. I know that sounds dumb, but, you know, creation, when you look, dissect a rabbit, you find it's made up of a bunch of parts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they theorized that everything actually must come down to these two-dimensional shapes. These tiny, itty-bitty particles must be interacting to create all of things. And they called these tiny particles atoms. And they believed atoms could exist in infinite numbers of different shapes. Um, now, again, this is philosophy, not science. Later, when science discovers the atom, they discover the tiny parts and they name it after atoms from this philosophical theory from thousands of years before the actual discover, discovery of atoms. I know that gets confusing, but this is where the word atom comes from. So in atomism and Epicureanism, there's, there's some tenets of these beliefs in, in Greek philosophy. Um, they believe that nothing comes from nothing. As in, everything in the universe had to come from something else. And that nothing can become nothing. As in, I don't die and become nothing. Because I am something. When I die, I become something else. Or all the atoms that were me become, those atoms get used to create another thing. As far as the physical world's concerned, that's mostly correct. They believe that everything is atoms and void. So all things exist because these tiny little shapes are interacting and the little spaces between them combined with the, with the little shapes, is what creates all of the other things. It's pretty pretty dang close. I mean, it's not shapes. We know what atoms are now, hopefully. If not, that's more of a science podcast thing, but it's weirdly close. There's no such thing as void. 
the way that they had thought of it, but whatever. Um, infinite atoms exist. There is an infinite number of atoms. We know the universe is ever expanding. So again, that's pretty close to reality. Another belief of atomism is we cannot conceive of every shape that an atom will make. You know, all of the different shapes, they're all just tiny shapes. Some of them are shapes that we couldn't even think of. Okay, whatever. Atoms move constantly because of the void. That's another belief of atomism. Um, one more is everything comes from a collision of these atoms. And thus, any number of realities and physics could exist in parallel universes and other dimensions alongside our own. So because all of this around me right now only exists because tiny little atoms are interacting to cause them to exist, that should also mean that any other infinite number of parallel universes, the same thing's happening, but those collisions and different shapes are creating other things in the same space that I am in. So that's how we get the idea of parallel worlds, parallel universes, all of that it comes from this Greek thought and what they believed atoms were and what everything was made up of. A lot of it's pretty close to our own. A lot of scientists still take some of this idea pretty seriously. If you go back to some of the theories of the Big Bang, we see that that's where we get, they believe, that's where we get a lot of the rules of physics. You know, reality kind of unfolded at a certain point. And if that's true, that should mean that any other number of realities could have unfolded at the same time in the same space even. So we would have these parallel universes. So it's also kind of some modern scientists believe this. Not an extremely popular scientific belief right now, but it is kind of a continuation from Greek philosophy to modern science where they believe some of this. Um, they've had a couple different satellites go out. Some suggest that there are evidence that different laws of physics exist somewhere out there. And there are some that suggest, no, that's definitely not true. Um, some scientists will say that as the universe is ever expanding, some pockets cre are created where different Physics, different rules of reality appear in these little pocket dimensions, basically. There's a lot of different theories of multidimensional whatever. If it's true that there is parallel universes, parallel worlds, then one theory is that God exists in one of these and was able to construct from whatever rules exist in his dimension. He's able to construct the rules that create our dimension, the physics and stuff that created our dimension. Or that God's able to exist in just another dimension, God created all of the things and he just kind of stepped aside in his own pocket dimension and chooses when he wants to come interact with ours or any of the other parallel worlds. So that's another theory of where God is. Look at 2 Maccabees chapter 7, verse 28. I know that's not in a lot of our Bibles, but I think it's important for this. So this is a lot of people, Apocrypha, our Catholic Orthodox followers. Y'all know this one. Um, I beseech you, my child to look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. This is part of, you know, early Jewish thought, early Christian thought was everything made. God had to make it out of nothing, um, which kind of tracks, right? Like everything had to come from something. And that is one of the big, like, battles that the early church and Jewish thought was having with atomism is they believe that nothing comes from nothing as in everything had to come from something else that everything must have always existed. And there's just changing form. There was no true beginning to stuff stuff just came from other stuff that came from other stuff forever because everything's just these little atoms. Um, and thus part of what Epicurus and a lot of people who believe in atomism would argue is that 
if God exists, he's just more of these atoms colliding because there is nothing outside of atoms to them. Um, so that's just what they believe, and that's why the church reacted so strongly against it because, A, God can't exist in the same stuff as us and be all-powerful. B, if God's made of the things creation's made of, then he couldn't have created creation. And C, we believe that everything was made by God from nothing. Most of us, not all of us. We'll have that discussion more as we go on, but that is one of one of the more popular Orthodox beliefs is this creation ex nihilo. Philo of Alexandria, he he was a Hellenistic Jew. Think of the time of the early church. He was around that same time. He made a lot of arguments, um, Platonic arguments. So he he was a follower of Plato against this idea of atomism. You know, he he kind of stated that nothing is self perpetuating, as in. It kind of defies reason to think that all of creation came from all of creation because eventually there had to be a first thing to put all of the other things in motion or else even if atomism was real, these atoms would just be stationary in one spot. Something had to put motion into motion. Um, he said the same thing with time. Time is progressive, which means something had to start time to put it into progression. And that's so he had, he kind of had, um, even though I don't think he would have put it in this term, more of a dynamic, linear progression of time philosophy. So he believed that God had to create space and that God had to create time. And he is actually the one who created the doctrine of uh, creation ex nihilo. Of God had to create everything out of nothing because something had to start it all. And God was that uh, proto-existent thing. God was the first thing. Um, Augustine also, St. Augustine, he fought very hard against atomism and Epicurus, all that stuff. Um, he believed, again, the same same kind of way that God had to put things in motion for them to exist and for God to have authority over everything in order for God to offer salvation and for God to, as the Bible says, God's saving the entire world. He's saving the universe. The universe is going through growing pains of salvation. In order for that to make sense, God has to have authority over all things. God can't be made up of the same stuff we're made up of. God can't be part of creation and have authority over creation. So God must be higher than creation. And in order for that to be the case, he must be the creator of creation. So St. Augustine kind of developed a lot of his philosophy and a lot of the philosophy of creation ex nihilo and what we believe about creation, God's authority and salvation all depend on some of this Augustine Platonic thought, some of what Philo of Alexandria came up with as he is a Jewish philosopher, all of that is how we get to our modern day beliefs of creation and salvation and why it's so important to us. Not necessarily because it's directly in the Bible, but because of the reasoning that developed in reaction to atomism in the early church. So God must either have matter or be able to become matter in order to interact with us, though. So even though we... we we see Augustine, we see the other thinkers saying this idea of God has to have started before creation in order to start all the things. If he was made up of the same thing as us, if he was part of creation, he has no authority to create or to save. But also, if he's going to interact with us, as we mentioned earlier, he can't be a two-dimensional thing create, interacting in our three dimensions. He has to either have the same or more dimensions than us. Um, now, could God exist in another dimension? Yeah, that's possible. He could exist in one of these parallel pocket universes, any of these things that other people are talking about. But he also has to be able to exist in ours if he's able to make the kind of impacts that the Bible says he did, the kind of impacts that I've experienced in my life and so many other people throughout church traditions say they've experienced God doing. He has to be also exist in ours. 
So there's still the same problems. So if God can't be made up of the same stuff of us, he's made up of the same stuff that's in another universe. Well, he still has to be part of our universe in order to interact. So he still has that problem of what is God made up of? If not atoms, if not whatever, he has to exist in our universe in order to interact with us in our universe, at least partially. So that doesn't actually solve any of the problems to say that God's just in a parallel universe. So whatever God is, um, he has to at least partially be exist or relate in space and time and our dimension. Um, his relation to these things can, might be different than ours. That's possible. Maybe he relates differently. You know, I'm not the same 3D figure that you are. I'm not the same 3D figure that my cup is. Maybe he has different properties in time and space and everything else, but he has to still exist in them in some way in order to physically interact with them. Um, so he, he can be more dimensional. He can relate differently, but he cannot logically be in less dimensions than us. Okay, so if God is both filling the heavens and the earth and or sitting on a throne in heaven far away from us, um, where's heaven? What is heaven? So the Hebrew word I'm going to botcher is like shamayamim. Shamayamin, shamaya, shamayim, shamayim. There we go. Um, that word in the Bible, it's sky, it's heaven, it's God's realm. Kind of it's space, but they didn't have the idea of space yet. So when it says God created the heavens and the earth, he means, they mean earth, because they didn't know earth was round. And the thing above the earth is what they called the heavens. So atmosphere, space, all of that. That's what they really meant when they said heavens a lot of the time. That's why the word for sky and heaven are the same. Because that was kind of their concept. So they were constrained to the language that they had. They believed that heaven had to be high up above because there on earth, below earth seems to be more dirt. So they figured up above is where heaven was. So they just had one word for sky and heaven. And, you know, God's realm, all of that is just shamayim. It's all the same thing in their language. So even when they're writing the Bible, if they mean different things, they're still constrained to one word because that's all they had. But then you have these parts that kind of seem like if God directly inspired the Bible and it's directly from God, that God's either dumb or God didn't know about space. I mean, which, you know, God's dumb or I just the Bible can't be fully accurate. Like, it's really confusing. Think of the Tower of Babel. They're building this tower up to the sky. God's like, oh, they think they're actually going to reach us. They're making some real progress here. we got to stop that. Why do you have to stop the Tower of Babel? Uh, even if they went infinitely high, they would just end up in space somewhere, which also isn't really possible. So why did God care about the Tower of Babylon? There was nothing they could do to reach him. It was actually impossible. We know that now. We've taken spaceships far higher than any building could ever possibly exist. And God wasn't there. God's not just in the sky somewhere. He's not just floating around in space somewhere. Or if he is, it's way further out than people of Babylon were ever going to be able to make it to. Without spacesuits, especially. So, was God dumb? Did God forget that they couldn't build that high? Did God punish them for some other reason? Maybe he just punished them because of their pride. It had nothing to do with the fact that they were actually able to build something that tall. Why did it matter? It's because to them, to the author of the time who was writing this, because God did not write this, sky and heaven were the same thing. So a lot of the times when the Bible says the heavens, it just means the skies. It means space. 
But that gets confusing because it also seems like heaven is that place where God dwells. So for them, that's the same thing as the sky, but we have to know better. So we have to build a different theology of that. Is heaven in another dimension somewhere? Is heaven just a concept? Now that we know that heaven isn't just sky, we have to redevelop our theology to fit our modern understanding of space. Um, so let's talk about what actually happened. So the church kept building on this idea of heaven, being in the sky, being up above, and to kind of just complicate it without ever actually deconstructing it or questioning it for really an extremely long time. Um, first, we go back to St. Augustine. Um, he writes this book, The City of God, and he writes it right after Rome falls. So he sees all this death. He sees the crumbling of a human empire. Um, and he realizes that, that he needed to write something that's helpful, not only to the current time, but also for future generations to think about, do we only exist in our empires? Where is God? Where is the city of God? Do we Are we part of God's empire? What's going on? There's a really cool quote that I wanted to read from this book, um, The City of God. So this is St. Augustine. Is it this good, which we are commended to love with our whole heart, with our whole mind, and with our whole strength? It is toward this good that we should be led by those who love us. And towards this good, we should lead those whom we love. And this way, we fulfill the commandments on which depend the whole law and the prophets. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, with thy whole soul, and with thy whole mind. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For in order that a man might learn how to love himself, a standard was set to regulate all his actions on which his happiness depends. For to love one's own self is nothing but to wish to be happy. In the standards is union with God. When, therefore, a person who knows how to love himself is bidden to love his neighbor as himself, is he not, in effect, commanded to persuade others as far as he can to love God? I love this book. The whole book is just rich with good philosophy. Um, a lot of what he's talking about here is just if you love yourself, you love God. So if you're told to love your neighbor as yourself, should you not be trying to help your neighbor to love God? So part of my love of God extends to me loving myself. Part of me loving myself extends to loving my neighbor. Part of me loving my neighbor extends to helping them love God as part of my love for God. So it's a whole circle of everybody loving each other and teaching each other to love God better. Um, the book kind of focuses a lot on how it's important for us to build our relationship with God and realize that our kingdom isn't on this earth, but it's in God's kingdom. But also to realize that as part of God's kingdom, we are working here today to build our human kingdoms in such a way that it'll help people come to love God better because we're really just ambassadors. We're really just ambassadors for God's kingdom who are here on this earth trying to make these kingdoms better equipped to help others love God. Augustine's contribution to our thoughts on heaven were largely a reaction to the fall of Rome. I mentioned that earlier. Um, he needed to believe in a better kingdom that wouldn't fall. He saw this death, destruction around him, and he needed to believe that God was better. And he needed to develop that theology as a comfort and as hope. Um, the danger, though, is to allow that future kingdom to blind us to our current kingdom work. And that's something that a lot of this book really gets at is Augustine saying, yes, here's this hope. Here's our future kingdom. Here's what we're actually a part of. Real Christians are a part of this kingdom, not Earth's kingdom. But then he did a really good job of kind of showing that part of our kingdom in heaven is to do kingdom work here and now. And that's something you see throughout the Bible is whatever your theology 
or your philosophy of heaven is, it always should come back to how you're doing kingdom work now. The kingdom of God isn't just heaven one day. It's also here now. Just like God isn't just in heaven far away, he also fills the heavens and the earth. If there's empty space, God is everywhere. If we believe that we are part of are going to be in heaven one day, we should also be doing kingdom work now. And our beliefs about heaven and end times really should constrain themselves to how we behave now and help our fellow man today. So we can disagree on whether God's in another dimension. We should think about that. We should try to figure out where is heaven? Does God exist in all these places? Is heaven in a pocket dimension? Are there multiple dimensions of things? Is God outside our time? Is he in our time? All the things are important to think about, but our thoughts about heaven and where God is should always lead us, no matter how much we disagree or how confused we are, should always lead us back to doing God's work right here, right now, in a meaningful way. There is more to good theology on heaven than just saying it's part of where God resides, or it's completely where God resides, or it doesn't exist, or it's space. Our theology on heaven needs to be theology of how we do kingdom work now. Um, the early church taught how in salvation, one becomes one with the church. The idea in early church tradition was when you're saved, you're part of the church now. And that the church one day is going to join God in a kingdom of heaven. We're going to put purgatory stuff aside for now. That was a lot of belief of early church too, but we'll leave that alone. That one day you'll be in heaven as the church collectively. And that being divided with the church or to be outside of the church meant that you would not be part of the new heaven and earth that God's preparing for the church. And that's why divisiveness, that's why separation was one of the biggest sins that the church was concerned with for a very long time. Thanks to theologians like Thomas Aquinas, Anselm, others, the church started kind of shifting their teaching in the Middle Ages to be more directly the consequence of the individual salvation or life. So they started getting away from the church goes to heaven, be a part of the church, and more to you need to worry about your salvation, your personal relationship with God kind of stuff. That starts to happen in the Middle Ages. Thomas Aquinas and some, a lot of them have to do with it. Personally, I think both of those things are important. When we get to the theology of what salvation is, we'll talk further about that. Um, I think it's tragic that we kind of left being a part of the church. is The church is what goes to heaven, and salvation is to be part of the church. I think it's important to remember that. Yes, you have personal salvation. Your personal salvation should lead you personally to be part of the church, because that's what God's relating to, is the church. Leave that alone for now. Go to our other podcast, the Whole Church Podcast, to hear me rant more about church unity and the church, but I'm going to leave it there for right now. Um, Dante, I don't know how to say his last name ever, but Dante's Divine Comedy takes the reader through hell, purgatory, and heaven. So if you've ever heard Dante's Inferno, it's just the hell part, but it's a three-part book. So I hate when people just read the Inferno. makes no sense to me because the book... The purpose of Dante's Divine Comedy is inspiration for us to change and hope for the future. Um, hell shows us what kind of people are in hell. Remind you, this is written that Middle Age time. So this is when we're starting to think of the individual salvation. That's why the people in hell all look sad, all look a little gross. If you just read Dante's Inferno, you think that he's a really perverted, disgusting guy. But then you go through the purgatory. You go through um, Dante's Paradise, Paradiso. Um, and you see what heaven looks like. You see the people being happier, smiling more. You see a, a brighter future. The, the purpose of the book was to lead the individual to think of, am I the kind of person who ends up in hell or am I the kind of person who ends up in heaven? 
So it makes no sense to just read Dante's Inferno. It's a side note, but it's an important book in the church because that is right there when the church is changing its idea of salvation is how you become part of the church, being part of the church is how you go to heaven, to you as a person are going to go to one of these three places or one of these two places, hell or purgatory, and purgatory eventually will lead you to heaven. They believe everyone in purgatory eventually goes to heaven. But you see it. You see this change of the ecclesia being the main thing to the person's salvation being the main thing. And that happens right there in that time during the Middle Ages, during the Renaissance kind of stuff. Um, then during the Reformation, you get people like John Calvin, like Martin Luther, um, Jacob Arminius. They start dealing with more of these ideas of predestination. So you see it kind of develop, develop a little bit further. So you have these ideas now of not only is it we're getting away from the church goes to heaven, be a part of the church and salvation makes you part of the church. We got away from that already. We started shifting the focus the church did to this personal thing. And now the reformers take that conversation to even a further part. And I think often a disgusting part, but just me personally, I don't like the idea of predestination. I don't like a lot of the Calvinist points of the elect stuff. Um, I know where it is biblically, I'm happy to discuss it when we get to it one day. I'm happy to discuss it with anyone who emails me, but I just, I don't like a lot of the elect stuff that gets thrown around. Um, But again, that's just a further examination of personal salvation. You know, John Calvin teaches that every, that God has the elect. He kind of knows who's going to go to heaven. He predestined people for that. He created you with the purpose of eventually going to heaven. A lot of that builds on this idea that God doesn't exist in time. That God is outside of our time and outside of our space examining things. And when he created, he just knew where everyone was going to go because God's all knowing and exists outside of time. Jacob Arminius, he is a belief uh, a little bit different. Also the same time of the Reformation, um, sort of similar times. God made creation to have union with creation. The reason God made everything so that he could be united with the things that he made so that he could interact with us. That includes the earth. That includes the heavens. God did not make us and he did not make the heavens so he could one day have communion with those that he likes or has pre-chosen. So Arminius didn't think that he created some people for hell, that he just created some people just because he believed he created that God created everything because God wanted relationship with everything. And that included the heavens. Obviously, a lot of this conversation is getting really close to the salvation and elect other doctrines, but this is just kind of showing you where our belief of where God is and where heaven is kind of impacts how we view these other doctrines, these doctrines of salvation, these doctrines of sin, these doctrines of ecclesia and the church. A lot of our doctrines kind of hinge on one another. So this is building out of where is God, where is heaven? So does heaven or hell exist or do they exist yet? Um, We look at Luke 16. They're kind of this idea of a limbo, a purgatory. There's this thing called Abram's bosom that it talks about. Is that like a pre-heaven? What is that? The Bible doesn't say. People have argued about it forever and continue to argue about it. It could be limbo. could be purgatory. might be like a holding place for heaven. You know, Jesus said he, he goes to prepare a place for us in John 14. Maybe heaven's not ready yet. And before heaven's ready, we all just get to hang out in this place called Abram's bosom. Who knows? Is heaven even exist yet? Maybe not. If Jesus is preparing a place, maybe heaven's not ready yet. Maybe heaven's like in construction. I don't know. I don't know how heaven relates to time any more than I know how God relates to time. So that goes back to this multidimensional theory. It goes back to this, how does heaven exist in time and space kind of theory? What does Jesus mean when he says preparing a place? We don't know what Abraham's bosom is. We don't know where heaven is, if heaven is any of this. Um, The book of Revelation, 
has a lake of fire and it has a lot of things that exist that people get thrown into before hell is finally made. So maybe hell doesn't exist yet. Maybe heaven and hell don't even exist yet. Maybe they will one day and they're just in construction right now. And in the meantime, we either go to Sheol, the grave or Abram's bosom, which is like pre-heaven. There's a lot of possible theories out there that theologians have been arguing about for a long time. Um, the book of Isaiah and Revelation say that there's going to one day be a new heaven and a new earth. So maybe there's a heaven now. Maybe that's Abram's bosom. But then what God's really working on is new heaven, new earth when he starts over. And the new heaven is what we're really talking about a long time. We're talking about one day going to heaven. I don't know. I don't have any strong answers for you here. Um, what I do know, that our ideas of heaven should help us be the kingdom of God right here, right now. Or else these ideas, these discussions are useless if they're not helping us do that. So, hey, let's disagree. Let's ask these questions. But let's make sure that whatever our answers are, it's help pre preparing us to be the kingdom of God right now. The city of God here on earth during the city of man. We are the ambassadors to the city of God in our own time, in our own place. Before he does the new creation or does the Big Bang part two, whatever God does next, what God has in mind is for our theologies of the end times, for heaven and hell, to help equip us better be Christians right now. And the church, collectively, is going to be one. We'll be united in the new heavens. That's one thing I do know for sure. Um, I know that heaven is more than where God dwells. Because God is everywhere. God dwells everywhere. Heaven and earth. I know that we don't know when it is, and we don't know where it is. Um, I do want to do one thing. I want to leave you guys with three questions. Think further about. Email me. Talk to each other about it. Um, whatever you want to do. I, I hope thinking about these three questions will help you better know where to study, what to ask, and worship God more with your mind. First, and these are all questions from today's episode, where is heaven? And better yet, maybe you should have heard that question, where slash when is heaven? Next is, how is God imminent? If, how is God in all things if time is static? The third question would then be, how do my ideas about heaven help me be a better Christian today? So take those three questions with you. Um, I don't have any clear answers for anybody. You know, that's not what we do here. I hope to leave you with more questions and answers. And I think those are three really useful questions in our quest to be better Christians and better workers and members of the kingdom of God today. So all that said, I hope you're all just as confused as I am. Um, I hope that you're inspired to study great theologians like Thomas Aquinas, like Dante, like Augustine, uh, like Philo. I hope you're encouraged to study people like them more deeply on this topic and that you're able to go forward in your own faith journeys a little bit deeper, thinking a little bit more. Thank you all so much for joining this dummy on his journey to learn more about God and to love him better. I hope this has encouraged you to worship God in your own thinking and to keep on struggling. This was an Anazal Ministries podcast. If you'd like to check out other shows like this, be sure to subscribe to the network.